What would you do if, uh, if you had some connection with a young man and that young man had been given everything that he needed to be a mature man, to grow up, but he still spoke like a child because he thought like a child and so he acted like a child. What would you, what would you say to him? Yeah, it's time to grow up. That is essentially what Paul tells us in this passage this morning. But it's not a, it's not a harsh rebuke. It's actually more like a call to action. It's sort of like, it's like a good dad who, who rouses his oversleeping teenage son and wakes him up one morning and he says to him, son, get up. I've got something I need you to do. And so the, the boy, manages to get himself up out of bed and he, he combs his hair and gets himself ready and he starts, his head starts to clear a little bit and then he goes to find his father. His father's not in the house. So he goes outside into the backyard and there in the backyard is everything imaginable that would be necessary, both materials and tools, to repair their falling down fence. And the dad says, okay, son, let's get to it. Paul is saying to us, You have been given everything that you need. Everything that you need for maturity in Christ. And now, (laughs) it's time to grow up. He begins with the words in verse 14, as a result. He's pointing back to what he's already been talking about in the previous passage. And if you recall what was going on there, in verses 7-13, to he said that God has given us gracious gifts, that Christ has given us gifts. And the measure of of those gifts, the magnitude, the weightiness of those, those gifts is in accordance with His gift, which is our, by grace, through faith, salvation in its entirety. So in addition to salvation, He has given us other gifts. He has given us gifts for here and now that equip us And so he focused then on some specific gifts of the Spirit that have been given to the body. Not just gifts, but people, men, who have been equipped, who have been given the gifts of apostleship, prophecy, evangelism, preaching and teaching, pastoring and teaching. And he said that the reason that those gifts were given is for the equipping of all of us saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And then he, he takes that idea of the building up of the body of Christ and he shows us this, this beautiful goal that God has for the gracious gifts that He has given to us. And the goal is that we may all attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature that belongs to Christ Himself, to the fullness of Christ. And he says then having presented that as as the promise and the gift and the goal, he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children. We've been given what we needed to be mature. And and there's no cause, there's no reason any longer to be children. So then, he shows us what growing up looks like. He doesn't just uh, he doesn't just kind of in a bare way say in a vacuum say okay grow up time to grow up 
he starts to walk us through how this growing up works. And the first thing he, he does is he gives us a contrast between what we've been and what God intends for us to be. He says, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Now, if you, if you don't see anything else in that, you should certainly see that Paul is taking, he's taking the threat seriously. He doesn't see the lie as something that can be uh, taken lightly. He, he speaks of it as falsehood that is fortified by trickery, by deception, by craftiness. And, and again, that means that our enemy is really good at what he does. He knows how to take a lie and make it look like the truth. And make it look really, really good. In fact, <laughs> he's so good at it that Paul is having to tell those who are truly believers in Jesus Christ, the redeemed of the Lord, that we have to turn away from that kind of deception. And then he, then he tells us how. He starts to, he gives us the first kind of hint here at how we actually manage to be fortified and protected. And that is, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And I'll submit to you, beloved, that I believe that that exhortation in verse 15 is the theme of all of verses 14 to 25. I believe He gives us that exhortation here in sort of a soft form, and then He gives it to us like a slap on the back side of the head in verse 25 as a forceful imperative, a command. We are to speak the truth in love and thereby grow up in all aspects into the One who is our head, even Christ. Now, <laughs> one of the things that you'll spot right there in verse 15 is that he's saying truth and love are not contradictory. We are to speak the truth in love. And that, that love that we have for each other that is our response to God. We love Him because He has loved us. We love His people because He has loved us. That, that love is what drives the way that we speak to one another the true things. The things that are true of Christ. He's not just, of course, He's not talking about when He says the truth. He's not talking about you know facts, about politics or economics or nature or history. He's talking about the truth. He's going to say in a little while, just as the truth, the truth is in Christ. And throughout, throughout all of Paul's writings, throughout the teachings of Jesus, the truth is what you'd call a technical term in Scripture. That means it, it doesn't fit the, a general meaning. It means something very specific. It means the truth concerning Christ. We are to speak the truth in love. And the world thinks that this is really something, and this is just in our generation. In fact, I've, I'm surprised at my age that I lived to see things get to where they are now. Because we've reached the point where any notion that there is an absolute truth to which we are all accountable is considered antithetical to love. 
It's considered to be a negation of love. And so tolerance, tolerance of whatever anybody wants to think and however they want to live, that's considered loving. But truth is considered to be opposed to love. And, and Paul says, no, no, in fact, speaking the truth is loving. And, and I'll submit, speaking the truth of Jesus Christ is the most loving thing that we do for each other. It's the most loving thing that we do for, it's the most loving thing that we do for unbelievers. But it's also the most loving thing that we do for one another. And it is, it is the most powerful thing that God does through you and me to build up His body into one that you're now. To bring us to that unity that this whole first, this whole fourth chapter has been about thus far. Alright, so we're to speak the truth in love, thereby to grow up in all respects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Now, <laughs> that points out another thing that's super important in this passage, and that is that, that growing up is not an individual pursuit. In fact, on the authority of this passage, I have to tell you that if, if your version of being a mature Christian is all about your personal holiness, you're not a mature Christian. Because God's version of the maturity that He is, that he is at work to produce in Christians is all about the maturity of the body of Christ. Uh, let me read you something. I think this is great. This is from John Calvin and his commentary on this very passage. He said, if we wish to be considered members of Christ, let no man be anything for himself. But let us all be whatever we are for the benefit of each other. And I would, I would carry that a little bit further. I'd say let all of us be everything that we are for the growth of the body. And he says, this is accomplished by love. And where it does not reign, where love does not reign, there is no edification but an absolute scattering of the church. The command to speak the truth in love also tells us that it's possible to speak the truth without love. And I've been guilty of that sometimes in my Christian life. I've been so busy being right that I wasn't loving. And I have done damage to the unity and the well-being of the body of Christ when that's happened. Fortunately, God has given me some brothers and sisters in this body and one dear sister to whom I am marvelously married who have the courage and the love for Christ and for His body to show me and tell me when I've done that. They speak the truth to me. And that's good for the body. And that's good for all of us when we do that for each other. It's a, it's a marvelous... See, what, <laughs> what we're being called to here is, is a beautiful gift of God. We get to be agents of the living God to communicate His truth motivated by His love for His people, for His body. And in doing so, we get to be agents of the building up of the body of Christ. Now in the next verse, in verse 16, He says, we're growing up into the head who is Christ. One, 
one head, one mature man. We're growing up into him, not growing up as a bunch of individuals. Then he says, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, it's fascinating if you look at the wording there, because what causes the growth of the body? The body. He says, he says, the whole body, fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, causes the growth of the body. And the reality, this amazing organic reality that God has created, it's not a, it's not a metaphor, guys. The body of Christ is not a metaphor. This is. See, this is the metaphor... And that's the reality to which this inferior symbol points. There is a body that's much better than this one. And that's us. And our head is Christ. And God through Paul tells us that every individual member of that body contributes to the well-being and the function, the working, the effectiveness of the body. And God gave us this marvelous example, this picture to carry around with us every day so we whack our finger in the door and the whole body comes to the rescue, right? What I want you to see here is that in this passage, this verse 16 is very often used as a tutorial on spiritual gifts. As if it's saying exactly the same thing that 1 Corinthians 12 is. Well, I believe there's a whole lot of overlap. He was just talking about Christ giving gifts to men. So I believe that it does touch on that. But beloved, what he's focusing on here, I think is undeniable. I think what he's saying is that the thing that you and I do that is most foundational to building up the body of Christ toward maturity in our one head, unity together in our one head, the thing that is most important that we do is we speak truth to one another. And that that's everybody's task. God gave gifted men to the body, to equip us in the Word. Those are all Word-focused gifts in the passage just before this. He gave us gifted men to, to encourage us, to nudge us, to build us up in the Word, in the truth, so that we would build one another up in the truth. God equips each of us so that we'll equip each other. And so, what I want you to see is the focus here is on speaking the truth in love. And, and that's, what makes, that's what makes God's body, the body of Christ, grow up together in beautiful unity so that we are powerful in this world to do the things to which God has called us. To seek and save the lost, to advance the glorious kingdom of our Lord. In verse 17, through 24, Paul moves from what a growing church looks like to how we actually grow up. At the heart of that, of the how we grow up is speaking the truth. And what I want you, again, what I want you to see in 17 to 24 is that the truth keeps coming up. The mind, the thoughts are to be so inseparably connected with the truth of Jesus Christ that when they aren't connected, that's when everything completely goes off the rails. Look at how he describes in verses 17 to 20 
the Gentiles, the pagan, the unbelievers, and by the way, we were all pagan unbelievers at one point, whether we were religious or not, how he describes their uh, lousy walk. He says, this I say, therefore, in light of what he just said, and I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. And then what kind of, a, what kind of behavior, what kind of morality does that separation from the truth produce in a person? He goes on, he says, because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart, they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. With greediness. I think it's significant that he ends with the word greediness. Because what is greediness at its core? It's selfish. It's selfish. It's all about me. At the expense of others. Now, I just want to point out in verses 17 to 24, there are four what are called infinitives. It's a Greek kind of Greek verb. Uh, and in very, uh, if you were to render it very literally, it would be this I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord, you to walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. And then in verse 22, you to lay aside the old self. Verse 23, you to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And the fourth one, you to put on the new self. These are what I would call uh, soft, soft imperatives. He's saying this is how this is supposed to work. This is how the church is supposed to work. This is what you are supposed to be doing. And then in verse 25, he's going to hit us with a hard imperative. A forceful one. But the first one is, you are no longer to walk as the Gentiles walk. He already said you're no longer to be children. <laughs> now he says, no longer, that means stop doing it. No longer walk the way the unbelievers walk. And what's wrong with the unbelievers walk? They are completely disconnected and have no relationship to the truth. And so their, their minds are futile. Their understanding is darkened. They walk around in ignorance. And it produces immorality. He says, verse 20, But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus. Okay, so how do you get, how do you get from being divorced from truth to being connected to the truth? You have to be in Jesus. You have to be in Jesus. You have to be brought into union with Christ. And that's what the whole first three chapters of this epistle were about. They were about the outrageous blessings that God has given to us by bringing us into union with Christ. How? By, we looked at it this morning. By grace, through faith, in Him alone. By grace you've been saved through faith. We did that as a responsive reading. Um, Ephesians 2 and Titus 3. So, truth is in Jesus, and that's how you get connected with the truth. By putting your faith in Him. And if you're here today, if you're here today and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone 
as the one and only provision from God to pay your eternal debt to, to God that you owe to Him because of your sin, because of your violation of His character. We've all violated His character. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, then may today be the day that you do. Because until you do, what you think is truth is garbage to God. Because truth, friends, truth is in Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter 8, he said, He said, You will know the truth, the truth will set you free. And a few verses later, he said, If the Son sets you free, S O N, then you will be free indeed. So, who's the truth? Jesus. Truth is in Jesus. All right. He says, You didn't learn, Jesus, you didn't learn uh, Christ in that way. If indeed you have heard Him and been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, it goes right back to this knowing that which is true of Christ. That in reference to your former manner of life, and, and now in verses 22 to 24, He, he gives us this, uh, this beautiful, miraculous change up. This exchange that, that has to happen. He says, He's telling us this is, this is how you grow up. You lay aside, <laughs> you lay aside the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. He had already talked about the deceitfulness of sin, corrupted in the lusts of deceit. You lay aside that old self. And, and he says, in reference to your former manner of life, he's saying that's who you were. That's who you were. That's not who you are. So put that away. And be renewed in what? In the spirit of your mind. Your mind is where all of this takes root. It gets to the heart through the mind. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man. You put off the old man, you put on the new man. Now the old man, that was just you. The old man is isolated and insulated and independent. The old man in each of us is selfish and self-focused. The new man, on the other hand, go back to chapter 2 and verse 15. This is the second time that Paul uses the phrase new man in Ephesians. The last time he used it, verses 14 and 15. Actually, we'll, let me read 14 to 16, chapter 2. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity between the two groups, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, listen, that in Himself He might make the two into one new man. Thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. See, our old self was... Self. It was selfish. It was me-focused. The new man 
is Christ-focused, and the new man only exists together. The new man does not exist as a bunch of individual children. The new man is one new man into whom we all grow up together. The one head of the body, and the body and the head, that's all Christ. You with me? We are so individualistic. We are so individualistic in our thinking that we reduce the Christian life to what I do. And to what my relationship with God is like. And that's critically important. Please don't misunderstand me. Your personal holiness is absolutely critical. But it's not the end point. It's not the goal. Your personal holiness is not God's goal. It's the maturity and the holiness and the righteousness of His church. Made one in Christ. And I've said before, that's one union, not two. Not a horizontal and a vertical. It's us in union with Jesus Christ together. And thereby brought into union with our triune God. It's an amazing miracle. Verse 24 is just fabulous. We put on the new self which in literally in God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. See, righteousness and holiness don't exist apart from the truth. They don't exist apart from Christ. The only reason we even know what righteousness and holiness are is because we've beheld Him. We know Him. He's the one who imparts to us, imputes to us, and imparts to us that which is true of Himself by bringing us into Him. It's a, a marvelous unity. It's a, it's a miracle. Read, read again in light of all this. Read John 17. Read the high priestly prayer. Maybe when you leave here today. And connect the dots. With how, how beautiful and how miraculous and how foundational is our unity, our oneness in Christ. Right. That's how we grow up. We, it, it's a metamorphosis. It's a transformation, an exchange. Of old man goes out the window and we put on the new man. And the new man is us together. That's what, we're put on, that's what we put on. Us together in Christ. In verse 25, Paul moves from soft imperatives to a strong imperative. And I see verse 25. By the way, I'm gonna, let me explain. Let me kind of show you how I came up with this structure for this message. Because to a lot of people, this is really weird that I would include verse 25 in any of this. I believe verse 25 is a transitional verse. It's the last verse of this passage and it's the first verse of the next passage. By the way, verse 25 is the first actual formal imperative in chapters 4-6. through six. And, and I mentioned before how many of those there were. There are 40. This is the first of 40 strong imperatives in chapters 4-6. through six. Commands. He's been building toward this. Therefore, Laying aside falsehood, speak truth each of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, if you look at the color coding on that slide, you'll see the same three parts. The white is one of the parts. In verses 14 to 16, which is one sentence, 
and in verse 15, which is one sentence. It's the same three parts. We are not to be children any longer, tossed around by every wind of false doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We are to put all that falsehood away from us. We are to speak the truth in love. And in doing so, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And then he talks about how the whole body, all the parts work together for the building up of the body. So, you have put aside the falsehood, speak truth to one another in love, because we are members of one another. And that's what he says in verse 25. That's why, to me, this, this all had to be one passage. It's it's bracketed. The passage is bracketed at both ends with the same exhortation. And it goes from soft to hard. It goes from, from kind of light to forceful and, and focused and strong. And he, he summarizes in this one little verse all that he's just been saying. Now you might look at verse 25 and say, well, where's the in love part? We'll flip over to chapter 5 for a minute and bear in mind this uh, the statement in verse 25, for we are all members of one another. Listen to this. Chapter 5, verses 28 to 30. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Listen, just as Christ also does the church. He nourishes and cherishes the church. And then it says, verse 30, why? Because we are members of His body. He loves and nourishes and cherishes His, his church because He has brought us into union with Himself. You, you ever think of the love of God toward you as a Godward love? It's by bringing us into union with Christ that God has made us beautiful to God. Because of Christ. Okay, so when he says, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor for we are members of one another, he's saying speak truth in love. He's saying the same thing. Alright. So, what do we do with all this? Well, I hope we ponder it some, but let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the ramifications. First, we've already kind of touched on that is that Truth and love are not mutually exclusive. Speaking the truth is the most loving thing that we do for each other. And, and the truth that we speak, beloved, is this. How many of you would know about Jesus Christ apart from this? See, that requires special revelation. You're not going to look at nature and know all about Christ. You'll know some things about Christ. But the reason we know Christ is because God sent Him from heaven to earth and He showed us the Father and men wrote down what He said and they told us all about Him. And before He came, the prophets told us all about Him. That's how we know about Christ. So, the truth concerning Christ is right here. And that means if you're going to speak the truth, you have to know this. Now, some people have said to me, even in this church, not many, Long ago, they said this whole approach to preaching and all the Bible studies and everything, it's just overdone. 
you know, community Bible chapel. Why not just community chapel? Guys, when I was, uh, told some of you this story, probably all of you. When I was about 20 years old, I was a baby Christian. I was, I'd been a Christian for three and a half years. And I went to this, uh, Bible, this Bible, um, camp thing in Houston, Texas, with a church called Bethel Independent Presbyterian Church. And the pastor there was a guy named R.A. Tilson. And that was my first exposure to expositional preaching of the Word. And that guy stood there and he preached the Word, man. He preached the Word. And it brought me to tears. And he would make connections and he would cite Scriptures and he just knew it. And, and what really what really astonished me, what really touched my heart is how he knew the Lord. And I walked out of that day at 20 years old and I said, I have to know the Bible the way that man knows the Bible because I have to know God the way that man knows God. Guys, we should not apologize for preaching and teaching the Scriptures. This is the truth. And if young people see that, if they see a seminary prof get up here at the worship meeting and share in a way that they can't even imagine they'd be able to share, you know what that should do to them? It should create in them a deep, burning desire to know the Lord of the Word the way that man knows the Lord of the Word. Let's not apologize. Let's not apologize for being zealous advocates of this truth. This is the living and active Word of God. Another ramification of this is you can't speak the truth to each other if you don't speak to each other. There are people in this church, in this room, who's weak, whose days are filled with interaction with the other people in this body. They are in the trenches with one another. They are loving each other. They are tending to each other's sorrows and sharing in each other's joys. And they are on the spot. They drop what they're doing. They bail out on their favorite TV show when they get that phone call or that text. And whatever it takes, they go and they are alongside that fellow saint. Guys, that's what we're called to. And in those contexts, we have we have unlimited opportunity to speak the truth to each other. But if we're not together, if we're not in each other's lives, if we're insulated, if we go into our home castle and we hit our switch for our electronic drawbridge, you know, Genie or Sears or Chamberlain, and, and the drawbridge opens and we pull in and, and we close the drawbridge and we're insulated from each other, we can't possibly be doing this. It's not possible. If our homes are closed to other people in the body of Christ, if someone needs a place to stay, and the last thing we think of is them staying with us, we're, we're throwing away all kinds of marvelous opportunities to speak the truth to each other in love. In love. That means in a way that is matched up with loving relationship with each other. And this is not a beatdown. <laughs> this is... This is a gift to God's people. This is a gift that we get to be one in this life together. We get to be one in Christ in such a way that we blow the doors off of the world's understanding and expectation about how love works. 
Man, we could go on a long time thinking about the ramifications of this. Here's one more. This is, some of you may consider this a reach. If you do, that's fine. And this is not from the elders, it's just from me. If oneness in the truth, if speaking the truth to one another is so foundational to what unites us, might it be helpful at times if we're a little better synchronized on the truth that we're talking about? In other words, I think we all, we're all kind of going about our own path during the pattern during the week in terms of our exposure to the truth and the truth that we're talking about to each other. What if we got on the same page? Not legalistically, but what if we got on the same page a little more intentionally? What if, for instance, for a time at least, what if our ministry groups talked about the passage that's going to be preached the next time? Then maybe we'd be a little better connected with that when it happens. I, I don't know. I don't have any any great you know uh, magic bullet here, but I, but I just it strikes me in the age of uh, unlimited information access, we're listening to all kinds of good messages. I listen to probably five or six sermons a week, and, and I highly recommend it. Better than listening to stupid radio stuff. By the way, guys, I listen to every sermon that's preached from this pulpit even when I'm not here. I listen to every class that is taught on Wednesday nights even when I'm not able to attend them because they're available online. And the reason I do that is not because i got a whole bunch more time on my hands than you do. It's because I believe I should be thinking about and praying about and talking about the same things that you guys are thinking about and praying about and talking about. Does that make sense? So let's think about getting a little better synchronized in some ways. Let's just be creative. Bottom line, bottom line is verse 25. Laying aside all falsehood, speak truth to your neighbor. And by the way, the neighbor there, based on what comes right after, is the body. Your, your brothers and sisters, speak truth to one another, for we are members of one another. We are members of one another. It's a gift. This is a beautiful, beautiful gift. Let's not squander it. Let's not treat it like it's like it's a burden when it's a gift. Loving Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the indescribable gift of our salvation to the uttermost in Jesus. And thank you, Father, for the gift of your people. David said. Psalm 16, Preserve me, O Lord, for I take refuge in You. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides You. And then He said, As for the saints who are in the land, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Father, may we find You to be our only good and Your saints to be all our delight. Because You have united us with one another in Jesus Christ for all eternity. Teach us, Father, to speak the truth to one another in love that we may grow up in all respects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And He may, through His body, be glorified on this earth and He may expand His kingdom to every nook and cranny of this earth through the likes of us. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.